0: Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Black and Green podcast. It is February twenty eighth, twenty eighteen, and I am Kevin Tucker, your host. Uh, trying out new program right now. Thanks to Doug, edits going down for recommending it. Hopefully, it'll make smaller file sizes and make the entire podcast more uh, accessible or easier to download. Take a bless space. And hey, if it doesn't work, Doug, edits going down. He's the one to blame. Let's put it on him. Make sure he knows that his suggestion sucks. Otherwise, thank you very much, Doug. And hopefully this gets us as all a step closer to being able to do things like record interviews. Um, and, uh, have it. So you're not just having to hear me talk as beautiful and great as that is for everybody. I'm sure, uh, you know, all good things come to an end. And if you love something, sometimes you gotta let it go. And, uh, some other people on here so let's start out talking tonight about technology and a big thing i've always had a, a fondness for dystopian uh futures I, I don't want to use the word science fiction uh but it probably fits unfortunately don't really read much of it don't keep up with it but as a kid i did in uh dystopian movies and things like that always kind of stood out. And I always thought they were a great warning. Uh, Apparently, a lot of people did not. And a lot of people thought, hey, let's make all those technologies that kill people in these movies that are big warning signs, big tales, uh, and let's just, let's make those things happen. Sounds cool. So, a big one of those people is Elon Musk. And he made a statement, probably not the first time he said it, but he's, he's talked recently about... Uh, having and wanting to see human colonies on Mars. Uh, Like he saw Total Recall and just the takeaway for him was we can do that. Uh, Of course, the reason why is because he recognizes that we are killing the earth. So gets me back to Ray Kurzweil. Everybody wants to give him a lot of respect, say that the singularity is this great ingenious thing that he realized. And you know, his history and predictions for everything are great. I'm, Always going to talk shit on him because he is a piece of shit uh, in every sense of the word. And I think that the kind of credit he gets for his predictions are, frankly, pretty laughable. Uh, but one of the things that he says is, you know, we're going to get to a point where we're going to create a machine smart enough to think our way through uh, bottlenecks and energy production and issues with climate change uh, and really everything that's going to make life on this earth uninhabitable. Its the entire thing with the the transhuman the transhumanist ideas and transhumanist ideologies and this whole like technological worship is really like the idea that we have beat nature, we have beat the earth, we are victorious, we have broken carrying capacity, we're figuring things out, new things are on the horizon and as uh somebody who takes a lot of look at history takes a lot of look at cultural anthropology and things like that. That is insanely hilarious because that's exactly what everybody who was an elite before their civilization collapsed would have thought. It's like, we figured it out. This can go on forever. Uh, If there is a day of reckoning, it will be a religious one. Not because we were too stupid to think about the idea that being sedentary, the idea of being dependent upon a production of food and surplus of food was a bad idea. And that the entire hierarchies and everything we made, all the mounting tensions, weren't going to solve themselves so of course uh you know the people behind transhumanism the people behind all these technologies the people behind all these corporations are total shitbags um but they're laughable in the sense that instead of saying that god is going to create these technologies although kevin kelly uh behind wire magazine and again another douchebag uh the guy who said that you can see uh the mind of god inside of an iphone uh Whatever, whatever that's supposed to mean, uh, you know they're they're thinking that we're just gonna create the new God that us the creators of God are gonna fix all this, and it's ridiculous. So I I, I wish them many more failures, um, and I I personally think it'll be hilarious if possible to see the looks on their faces when the entire system does fail and when the machines have not figured out a solution for uh climate change for peak energy for all the things that we're coming up against uh and I think they're scumbags and I hope that they don't get to develop any of the stuff they have and everything that they have done is obviously a huge issue but um ultimately I I don't think that they're going to get their wish. I don't think Kurzweil's dream of us inventing a machine that's going to be smart enough to figure out how to energize and fuel itself is going to happen. Uh it's 2018 we're still creating civil wars all throughout the world especially throughout the southern hemisphere and even in the United States to dispossess indigenous people and turn them into slaves for rare earth mineral mines and we pay warlords and all these things to enact the exact same shit that's been going on for at least the last 500 years and particularly longer than that uh, since the slave trade became more global but going back even thousands of years uh, to you know, the, the expansion of civilizations across large swaths of the Earth. So, as much as we want to believe because we have these insane technologies literally in our pockets and things like that, we want to believe all these things that we've, we've won, uh, that we've conquered it, and we're not going to. So, uh, let's focus on Elon Musk a minute. Uh, he's the guy behind Tesla, SpaceX. He got his money from PayPal. Uh, he's kind of the guy that is willing to talk a lot more and does talk a lot more about energy. Uh, does talk a lot more uh, does talk a lot more about solar panels. Of course, he doesn't talk about where the minerals and things like that come from, uh, but the production of it, and how he's going to be, of all the current crop of uh, nefarious technological twits, the one that's going to find the thing that saves us. So it's a lot of weight being put on this one guy. And the thing that kills me about all these douchebags and tech startups and all that stuff is that they try to make some kind of religious moralistic virtue from failure. Uh, And there's a couple things about that. And one is that, no, (laughs) it's not like you know, failing on a bigger, massive scale, and we'll get to Elon Musk failing in a second here, makes you a better person or makes you more wise. It just means that you have way more resources available than you should, and the things you're doing are probably stupid, uh, like, you know, the idea of whatever driving, wanting to drive a fucking space car on Mars. It's stupid as shit. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where all this stuff comes from. They get this kind of nerd culture where it's like anything we do, it's going to be failing is great. And we're going to get the next big thing. And then we're going to get the funding and it's all, all this shit comes down to is getting the funding, getting the fame, getting the money from it. All All these people are exceptionally, exceptionally rich. Um, and that's why we have in, in 2018, the the largest gap, uh, in wealth in in the history of, of people really in the history since money and wealth have existed at all. Um, and that's just going to be the way it keeps going. You know, we want to believe all these humanitarian kind of bullshit things that they're talking about are even worse when they try to pretend they're ecological. In reality, they're garbage people, uh, and they're garbage people that are worshipped by a lot of people because we believe their lies, we believe the ideas that they have, we believe that there's some innate good to them, and we keep giving them credit when none is deserved. But there's there's another side of that as well that really irks me and there's a lot of people who kind of have this idea about anarcho about rewilding and they're like you know if if you want to live wild if you want to be a hunter-gatherer that's great why don't you just go do it in fact you're a hypocrite if you don't so when you're looking at you know contemporary hunter-gatherer societies when you're looking at indigenous societies that currently exist you see the same trend that's been happening for a very long time since the origins of civilization and in some places in some forms since the onset of domestication. And that is the domesticated peoples, the civilized societies cannot stand to compete with or have to contest with the existence and the presence of wild people, of people without hierarchy, people without political power, people without uh, sex-based or uh, gender-based discrimination or kind of inequality. The Any system where political equality might even exist. I mean, you're talking about egalitarian societies. They don't need to have political charters or anything like that. This is just the way that they function. So they will kill them. Uh, Domesticated societies, civilized societies, regularly kill hunter-gatherers. They always have, they always will, and hunter-gatherers, being resilient, being nomadic, have the knowledge and strength and ability, for the most part, to move. And when pushed up against a wall, they will fight back. Some will fight back more than others. But it's been shown time and time again that their preferred way of handling these situations is really just like we have the ability. We're not stuck here like you people are. We're going to move. We're just going to move out of this area. We're going to move as much as we can. But uh, the more technology we have, the more we can go after them. And so you see the history of colonization. You see the history of contact. Contact. From, you know, especially over the last thousand years, particularly even now currently with uh, missionary groups really going after and trying to contact every single society that exists and a uh, bunch of fuckers like New Tribal Missions, now Ethnos 360, uh, Whitecliffe Bible Translators Summer Institute of Linguistics have made it their actual call to say we're going to contact all these groups. We're going to translate their languages, translate the Bible. That's their goal. They walk around day in, day out trying to fundraise and act like this is their God-given right, and of course it is because they created God, but um, acting like that has any meaning and that should just go on with impunity uh, and bring the entirety of civilization with them, um, which is, again, a recurring theme, another issue that will come up. Uh, But that's the reality of the situation is that this way of life, this way of existence that is defined who we are as individuals, who we are as a species, how we interact with the world is literally outlawed, It's literally pushed up against the wall and pushed out, and out of areas. So like when you're looking at the Kung, uh, they have been forced into settlements outside of their traditional homelands. And you have things like the Kalahari Game Reserve that were set up to envision and kind of recreate this section of within uh, Africa that after, after civil war torn apart, after these animals have been annihilated, uh, where they tried to recreate some semblance of like a time before civilization had existed within this park to bring in tourists. And at the meantime, there's diamond miners. There's now fracking. Uh, and I believe there's some oil as well, but uh, the mining and the tourism of course also involves, uh, big game hunting for f- wealthy first world fucks uh, all these things are happening in there and at the same time this Kalahari it's got all the the visage of, visage of the the Kong, the Bushmen the, their cave art and everything like that and they weren't allowed in there uh, even now when there's been decades of the Kong working to fight for access to these lands their ancestral lands which have been proven and shown and are part of the marketing materials um when they do go on there they're they're beaten up they're attacked as poachers they're jailed uh right now the kids are not allowed to go into the um to the to the reserve areas with their parents without uh like government permission and things like that so it's this really fucked up situation where the defense people want to have about saying that if you're against civilization if you're against technology and you use it that, that somehow makes you a hypocrite totally denies the reality of what's actually going on. The reason you can't do these things is because the hegemonic power of civilization. And that's, you know, even where I live in the Ozarks, um, you could get pretty far here where our land is. We were against 13 acres of state land. And then the Northeast quadrant of Mark, Mark Twain national forest is like 1.5 million acres. Of course, very disturbed, but, um, uh, we don't see many people out here at all, and frankly barely see anybody in the or any freddies in the, in the national forest any park rangers in the national forest and i think I see like one guy every now and then in the state for state land uh people do poach out here a lot uh and they they take their time they don't care too much they don't have many consequences there's there's little enclaves where permissiveness is possible only because the degree to which you can get away with it, but it is still nonetheless very illegal. And you can, you know, you get busted for it, you're going to do time. Uh, The penalties aren't going to be as severe as being beat, hunted down, and killed by your agrarian neighbors or being killed by, uh, you know, there's a whole lot to get into about that, but I'm I'm not dealing with that But uh, soldiers and militaries involved in ongoing and unending civil wars, uh, and uh, drug lords, warlords, and things like that, and here, but the error permissiveness and the idea of individual liberty and freedom and things like that are just these notions that give people the the ability and the the standing point to say you're a hypocrite if you're not doing these things you're talking about. It's like, well, I don't call myself an anarchist because I'm. Living this way, I call myself an arctic primus because there's something standing in the way, and that is civilization, that is domestication, this thing that will kill the entire Earth if given the chance. Clearly stands in the way, and you know it's not just about what I want to do, um, and I, you know, I want to drink water that's not poison. I want to breathe air that's not going to give cancer. Pretty, pretty insane demands, and very selfish, obviously. And I, I don't want to see the world die, um, but you know, because some fucking civilized douchebag wants to be able to drive around on a quad uh, you know they, they think they've got more they're, they're living proof that these ideas of freedom and these ideas of liberty and the ability to do what it is you want exist the reality of it is you can do what you want as long as you're willing to play along and that's a big fucking difference so that is why actual hunter-gatherers can't live the way that they always have the way that they're going to outlive civilization by a long shot so long as they can continue to live on the edge as they have, and so long as their cultures remain resilient, which for the most part they are despite insane situations, insane circumstances relating to contact, conquest, and forced settlements missionaries. Uh, But if you're Elon Musk, you can build rockets and shoot them into space. You can launch fucking rockets into the ocean, and you can say, that was a big failure, but here's here's a quote from him. Persistence is very important. You should not give in lo- you should not give up unless you're forced to give up. Motherfucker's shooting rockets off. He's making trying to make cars that are you know, driverless cars and things like that. All kinds of things you should not be able to do. All kinds of things that are far more consequential for the entirety of life and the entirety of the world than, you know, persistence hunters in the Kalahari. Yet because he's got money. He can do all this stuff. They can't do any of it. So, you know, it's a detractor. I'll get into it many times, I'm sure. But in general, when people want to talk about Eric Primus being a hypocrite, you know, I'm talking to a microphone attached to an uh, audio interface going into a computer right now. It's going to be broadcast on the Internet. I'm against all of these things. And that's why I'm an Eric Primus, because... Something needs to be done about the shit that's in the way. No hunter-gatherer ever called themselves an anarchist, but it didn't change the fact they were living in anarchy. Uh, so, yeah, ultimately, when it comes to those kind of, the kind of shit talking, the kind of hypocrisy stuff, I, I genuinely don't care. Never going to bother me. It bothers me more on a personal level, on every level that we're living within, the, within this, and we have to take part. We are complicit, uh, and we want to try and do things to reduce that and do something about it, but... You know, that's the bigger deal to me. So, the tractors aside, let's talk a little more about Elon. So, uh, let's talk a little more about Elon. And here's a fun quote to start that out. If you get up in the morning and think the future is going to be better, it is a bright day. Otherwise, it is not. Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. And another one, it's okay to have your eggs in one basket as long as you control what happens to that basket. So that is a great lead-in for this great little infographic that I'm going to read through about Elon Musk's failures. So this is a guy who the tech world and a lot of people in the world world think is going to save civilization. And a list of his remarkable failures that he's going to try and sell. 1995, he couldn't get a job at Netscape. 1996, he was ousted as CEO of his own company, Zip2. 1999, PayPal was voted one of the worst, top ten worst business ideas. Uh, obviously, we know that's the one that rode out, um, and you know made him what he currently is. But uh, people want to look at that and say he's a visionary. You know, it wasn't that hard to figure out from a market perspective. Much like Bezos figured out, if I've got the money, I got the resources. If this is the direction things are heading, if I can take over the credit card companies processing fees there it is uh in the same year crashes newly bought mclaren f1 worth one million dollars poor guy uh 2000 ousted from paypal while on a honeymoon so just barely a year later uh same year in 2000 almost died from cerebral malaria nature tried to take care of him unfortunately it didn't work 2001 Russians refused to sell him rockets to send mice or plants to Mars. Old Ruskies. 2002, Russia turned him down again. On the, And this was the impetus behind SpaceX. 2006, first ever rocket launch and first explosion. Congratulations. 2007, second rocket launch and second explosion. 2008, third rocket launch and third critical failure with NASA lights NASA satellites on board 100% failure rate for years December 2008 both Tesla and SpaceX on the brink of bankruptcy unfortunately did not fully go there 2013 first rocket failure while landing at the ocean uh, of course you know just just dump some rockets yeah. to the ocean no big deal That's, that that big old pile water doesn't seem to matter too much 2014 tesla model s has several problems with spontaneous battery combustion not a big deal 2015 fourth rocket explosion at launch second or third explosions when landing on a drone ship 2016 model x deliveries delayed more than 18 months kind of a common theme 2016 fifth rocket explosion at launch with facebook satellites for africa on board such humanitarian aids worth 300 million dollars didn't get there. Uh, they said they, quote, couldn't rule out the explosion wasn't caused by UFO. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. These guys are fucking hilarious, right? <laughs> good good, good. rocket explosion with a bunch of satellites on board. <laughs> Was it caused by UFO? Man, you got to love them. Hilarious. Fourth, fifth, and sixth critical failures while landing on a drone ship. Uh, stuff goes on in uh, 2017 for Tesla and his massive, unprecedented, automated solar panel factories and things like that Uh, just can't seem to get off the ground for him. So, like he said, if you get up in the morning and think the future is going to be better, it is a bright day. Otherwise, it is not. And here's why it's a bright day for me. Because everything he's doing, as fucked up as it is, as insane as it is, It's going to keep exploding on him. It's going to keep blowing him in his face. The little golden child of technology that they think is going to be the one to fix everything and improve it all, it's going to blow up in his fucking face. And I cannot wait to see it again and again. So sticking with technology here, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I wrote an essay in 2015. It was in the first Black and Green Review called Suffocating Void, uh, Pathological Distraction... Uh, I was in the byline. Uh, but at Essays Online, there's an audio version of it at Archive, uh, and I believe it's linked off the Black and Green Review webpage. But if you're getting these podcasts from Archive, it is also in the same thing. It's under Black and Green Press. Um, I know it's on my website, Tucker.org, and then I think it's on Black and Green Press as well. Uh, there's a lot of redundancy in the websites and then a lot of failure on my part to keep it updated because of that. My bad. One of the reasons why I'm doing the podcast. There you go. But uh, it's also in my new book, Gathered Remains, a collection of essays, out as of uh, about two weeks ago, maybe a week and a half. Uh, time goes quickly. So uh, I want to keep kind of following up on that. I get a lot of updates, and I see a lot of things in the press, and and increasingly seeing more of it in terms of people who were part of the tech giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, YouTube, and then go on to Instagram, Reddit, and whatever other shit is out there. I don't know. I'm sure soon enough this Vero thing is going to be in that list. But uh, there's just constantly people coming out and saying like, oh shit, yeah. I guess the thing we're doing was horribly malicious and is very intent on changing the way that society works and we're seeing more and more of that every day. The Russian hacking situation... North Korean hacking, Chinese hacking, all the governments hacking and doing all the kinds of shit that the CIA would normally do or the CIA still does, just got a lot easier. So, for me, an interesting thread throughout all this, aside from the fact that people realizing the obvious and saying it's like this is a, a malicious and insidious technology, is the uniqueness of how malicious this kind of technology, this kind of platform, this kind of interface really is and how uniquely malicious it is within this history of civilization which has a lot of competition uh when you look at you know anything over particularly over the last thousand years and going back before then you see some very 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 violent and controlled insane attempts to eradicate whole other groups of people to make slaves of them to uh, make commodities of them and just completely devastate the world so there's a lot of competition there, but in this regard, uh it's it's kind of crazier because it's it's not, you know, convincing the working class that there is a reason to be helping to fight for the cause of progress. It's not taking uh marxist and left-wing, maoist, stalinist, leninist kind of ideologies and trying to convince people to pick up arms and and protect the proletariat, the, the proletariat and create the dictatorship of the proletariat so that they could eventually be free in the name of progress and things like that. It's really about subconsciously subverting all of the things that make us human, our, our want for community, our need for other people and working with other people. And being able to, in real time, just maliciously kind of tear apart almost as a, a thought experiment to see how they can contrive and contort the way that we actually... Interact with other people and run it all through this interface, run it all through the mega machine. Uh, and you know when you're when you're looking at even talking about Lewis Mumford's definition of uh, megatechnics and the mega machine, uh, and looking at the, how the origins of technology and the origins of the machine and origins of civilization arose with the organization of human labor, uh, and convincing all these people that this is what they had to do, or as Stanley Diamond always pointed out, forcing them to do it, conscripts and soldiers and warfare. Uh, conquest so it's it's crazy to see in light of that history of civilization how things have functioned versus how people become uh, you know really get developed the stockholm syndrome with technology where it becomes the liberator becomes the the live progress it's no longer about and this this is what caused me to write the suffocating void is i i was writing as I typically did as a lot of us against civilization often do in the in the framework of talking about progress is progress is an idea progress is an ideology progress is you know this thing we're sacrificing ourselves for and we're we're working on building up and it became apparent at that time in about you know 2014 2015 talking about this stuff that the way that we were discussing progress no longer seemed relevant and it's not because the ideas weren't there it's not because the ideals weren't there it's just that it didn't seem like people needed to hear those kind of myths anymore. It seemed like the nature of that uh, sales pitch had really actually shifted. And obviously it had. And the whole thing about it was is that when it came to what I call the interface revolution, when we're talking about cell phones and we're talking about the Internet and we're talking about social media and just this kind of always-on culture, just this total shift from we're looking forward and we're going to have this thing to I've got this thing And just being used to the idea of it constantly updating on its own and it it offering more for my user experience of life, uh, whatever it is that we want to try and call it or whatever they're calling it. And just really identifying progress as something that is happening as, as a set of expectations for what is going to continue happening rather than an ideal. So progress isn't about what's coming down the line. It's about how cool this new thing is and the update that's coming about the new version that's coming, the new phone that's coming, the new platform that's coming. uh, This great new experience that I'm going to have and the new expression of myself that I'm going to be able to have through whatever change in technology comes along. And I mean, of course it's all bullshit. It's all insane, but you get so wrapped up in it that you, you stop losing your frame of reference and that's where things get really crazy. So one of the big books that I will constantly reference, and I think is one of the most important books of our times, talking about this, is Nicholas Carr's works, particularly *The Shallows*, what the internet is doing to our brains. So this book came out in, you think I had there, 2010, and then uh, when my copy's from 2011. So constant updates. He's got a lot of other books, some very great, some pretty good, but. Uh, he's he's really been on top of it and in front of really a lot of understanding about what's going on. And in this book, he talks about neuroplasticity, which is a very, very exciting term for understanding how our brain functions and how technology impedes upon it. So I'm going to read a little bit about this and talking about the that malicious nature of technology, the malicious nature of having Google and having something in your pocket that's always supposed to have an answer for you and being able to Google things and then you know, you get that feeling all the time of like, I don't remember things as well as I used to. I have a hard time with, you know, feeling like there's a word on the tip of my tongue or something like that. Or And I'm saying me, but it's a common thing. Um, but it's because the way our brains function, uh, we, we, well, I'll just read this quote. The depth of our intelligence hinges on our ability to transfer information from working memory to long-term memory and weave it into conceptual schemas. But the passage from working memory to long-term memory also forms a major bottleneck in our brain. Unlike long-term memory, which has a vast capacity, working memory is able to hold only a very small amount of information. In a renowned 1956 paper, The Magical Number 7, Plus or Minus 2, Princeton Princeton psychologist George Miller Observe that working memory could typically hold just seven pieces or elements of information. Even that is now considered an overstatement. According to Sweller, current evidence suggests that we can process no more than two or four elements at any given time with the actual number probably being at a lower rather than the higher end of the scale. Those elements that we are able to hold in working memory will, moreover, quickly vanish, unless we're able to refresh them by rehearsal. Imagine filling a bathtub with a thimble. That's the challenge involved in transferring information from working memory into long-term memory. By regulating the velocity and intensity of information flow, media exert a strong influence on this process. When we read a book, the information faucet provides a steady drip, which we can control by the pace of our reading. Through our single-minded concentration on the text, we can transfer all and most of the information. Thimbleful by thimbleful into long-term memory and forge the rich associations, associations essential to the creation of schemas. With the net, we face many information faucets, all going full blast. Our little thimble overflows as we rush from one faucet to the next. We're able to transfer only a small portion of the information to long-term memory, and what we do transfer is a jumble of drops from different faucets, not a continuous coherent stream from one source. The information flowing from our working memory at any given moment is called our cognitive load. When the load exceeds our mind's ability to store and process the information, when the water overflows the thimble, we're unable to retain the information or draw connections from within the information already stored in our long-term memory. We can't translate the new information into schemas. Our ability to learn suffers, and our understanding remains shallow. Because our ability to maintain our attention also depends on our working memory, We have to remember what it is we are to concentrate on, as Torkel Klingberg says. A high cognitive load amplifies the distractiveness we experience. When our brain is overtaxed, we find distractions more distracting. Some studies link attention deficit disorder, or ADD, to the overload of working memory. Experiments indicate that as we reach the limits of our working memory, it becomes harder to distinguish relevant information from irrelevant information, signal from noise we become mindless consumers of data. That's Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, mindless consumers of data. So this is an important point, and not only in, in showing the maliciousness of technology and where things are at with the interface revolution, is just that this is very much overtly about just controlling uh, the willingness of us as subjects, as captives, into the, the wants of the machine. And so I'm going to read a little bit from another book. This came out last year, World Without Mine, The Existential Threat of Big Tech from Franklin Foer. Really good book. One of my favorite books of last year. I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, and it works well with Nicholas Carr. One of the cliches of our time, data is the new oil. This felt like hyperbole when it was first articulated, but now feels perfectly apt. Data is a bloodless word. But what it represents is hardly bloodless. It's a record of our actions, what we read, what we watch, where we travel over the course of a day, what we purchase, our correspondence, our search inquiries, the thoughts we begin to type and then delete. With enough data, it is possible to see correlations and find patterns. The computer security guru, Bruce Schneider, has written, The accumulated data can probably paint a better picture of you and how you spend your time because it doesn't have to rely on human memory. Data amounts to an understanding of users, a portrait of our psyche. Eric Schmidt once bragged, We know where you are. We know where you've been. We can more or less know what you've been thinking about. A portrait of a psyche is a powerful thing. It allows companies to predict our behavior and anticipate our wants. With data, it is possible to know where you will be tomorrow, within 20 meters, and to predict, with reasonable accuracy, whether your romantic relationship will last. Capitalism has always dreamed of re- activating the desire to consume, the ability to tap the human brain to stimulate its desire for products that it never can contemplate needing. Data helps achieve this old dream. It makes us more malleable, easier to addict, prone to nudging. It's the reason that Amazon recommendations for your next purchase so often results in sales and why Google ads result in clicks. So, of course, uh, again, Franklin Foer. I'm going to read a little more from that in a second. But, uh... I think it is important to say, too, it's like the idea of capitalists creating desires is one I think tends to be overstated uh, just because, you know, they're not that smart. They do want to sell us products. They do want to keep us clicking. But they don't do that by necessarily creating every bit of it, but by contorting our want to deal with other people, our want to be around other people, to be social. Uh, and that's, that's where this unique maliciousness really comes from. It's the more innate... Uh, the programmers understandings about what it means to be a social animal is the more that they can, you know, even just taking shit on these words like social animal and community and all the, all these aspects about who we are and who have been as a species. that are so goddamn vital. Um, but just really contort and for evil means. So it's a pretty fucked up, wretched situation. Uh, but that's the world we live in until we change it. So, Wanna carry on from there uh and follow that up a little bit more with a bit from Cliff Hayes from the new issue, of Black and Green Review Number Five. Uh we've got this in the review section. It's called Ever Present Life with Digital Assistance. And it kinda of goes back, I think we had this idea last issue about uh the idea of writing a review of Amazon's Alexa. Uh it's you know a a laugh, a joke, some fun. Um and Cliff Took it and made a great thing of it. I'm really stoked on this. I'm very stoked on all of number five. As if you've listened to the podcast, you'll probably know I am. And for probably obvious reasons, as I'm an editor. Uh, so the bit here about Alexa is really about understanding how the contortion of understanding humans humans and our needs of social animals as a set of data, as a, a resource, a mindable material, a thing to extract and to contort and just play with is the innate center of all these, these you know, technologies and all the big technology companies. Again, Amazon, Google, um, Facebook and all the social medias and all the parasitic shit on there. Uh so the crazy thing about this change in technology, this interface revolution, is that the things that we're we're dealing with, we know that these things are contorting us. And I've mean, actually gone through, read some of the user contracts, or contracts and stuff like that, the things that we kind of mindlessly click on and famously don't read. These are massive documents. They're massive legal documents. So anytime something goes over the internet, anytime something goes through, something goes through a Gmail account or a Mac account or... Uh, your Facebook and stuff like that, they, they own that. That is their content. Um, and it's a big deal to try and do something about it. It's not necessarily that they're always doing something with it. And I think the original ideas that people had about privacy had to do with the fact that they thought they're going to use pictures of you and use pictures of your kids in advertising. And it's almost like a, a false flag sort of thing in a way uh, where I think people were focusing on that and it was really, really the minor issue. But what they are doing is they're trying to take every bit of you as data, as information and scan it and use it to try and sell you more things. And in doing so to create this bubble uh, really at this point, kind of famously um, creating this cycle where Google will filter results and, and Facebook or Google will contort results because they realize you're more prone to use these products and you're more prone to use these platforms if they reflect the world as you see it. So again, very malicious and their idea and they're trying to say it's like this liberty shit and freedom and whatever blah 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 kind of bullshit um but it really comes down to we want your attention we want to keep you here we want your clicks that's what we want because the more you use this service the more you're giving us data the better we can understand you and that's where it kind of goes back into this idea of building ai artificial intelligence and trying to get to this Step around the same place Musk and all these douchebags want to go to, where they can create, you know, their idea of a thinking machine. Um, and and to a certain degree, they they do. But I think that there's a bigger question of, at what point, we're becoming more like machines instead of what point are the machines becoming more human? And I think it's going to be, you know, I kind of joke about it, but it's a, a sad reality uh, to say that we're going to hit the point pretty soon here where. It'll be shocking when a millennial passes a Turing test rather than when a machine does. But it, it does have huge impacts. And that's the thing. It's like whether or not they'll actually get to these points that they're talking about getting to these transhumanist, what were dystopias like fucking 10 years ago, have become, you know, these utopian ideals about technology taking over and whatever they think it's going to do. But ultimately, all these technologies and all these tools and all these things that they're doing really we we accept them we embrace them in a lot of ways and we try and say it's like there's there's benefits to it um and we get really used to the idea of Amazon making recommendations for books and uh reading things on ebooks and having all this this competition for our attention on one platform in one place and increasingly just going to it and there's a, a quote in here in the forebook um uh, which I think kind of explains a lot of our current situation as well of Americans get their news through social media, and most of it via Facebook. A third of all traffic to media sites flows from Google. This place media in a state of abject financial dependence on tech companies. To survive, media companies lost track of their values. Even journalists of the highest integrity have internalized a new mindset. They worry about how to successfully pander to Google and Facebook's algorithms. In pursuit of clicks, some of our nation's most important purveyors of news have embraced sensationalism, They have published dubious stories. They have heaped attention on propagandists and conspiracists. One of whom was elected president of the United States. Obviously, Foer is a journalist, so he holds them in high regard. And I think the work of journalists can be very important, but I think in this day and age, they've become kind of an unsung hero just for basically doing their job in the most remedial way, which is reminding us that the things that happened last week weren't just going to go away. Uh, a lot of crazy shit going on in the world right now. So it's easy for the people to make heroes of somebody doing something very mundane, such as reporting the news. Uh, so, getting back to Cliff. Uh, let's explain a little bit about Alexa. I'll just read a little bit from this review, which again, from Black Green Review number five, and I highly recommend it. What is Alexa? It wasn't until June 23, 2015 that the Amazon Echo was officially launched in the United States, and it was clear from the start that what the Echo was offering was a conduit for the Alexa AI, which customers were interacting with through the device. It wasn't so much a smart speaker that you could command to play back your favorite tunes, as perhaps Alexa's first patent demonstrated. This was not only an assistant who you could interact with to control various IoT, Internet of Things devices, it was the assistant that could transform the way you experience life in the physical world. Two days after the Echo was launched in the U.S., Amazon introduced the Alexa Skills Kit. This kit was something like a programming development environment and marketplace where developers and other users can publish and utilize applications to enable add-on functions to Alexa. For those familiar with Apple and their App Store for products such as iPhone, the iPhone, these skills are similar to applications you can install on your iPhone to perform specific functions. Although one key difference with Alexa is that you're installing nothing on the local device using the Alexa AI. You're enabling these skills in the cloud. And so all data passed on to an Alexa skill, possibly all data passed to Alexa, is manipulated in the cloud. Likely that data is stored and used to inform the Alexa AI in general. And as Rohit Prasad, Vice President and Head Scientist for Alexa at Amazon stated, the inspiration for Alexa was cloud-based AI. One of the selling points for alexa according to prasad is that ai is able to do certain things better than humans can naturally when the civilized world hears about such things one of the first concerns is their occupation that which sustains the civilized world's being production and consumption sees such claims as threatening to its very core but to allay these fears prasad calmly instructed ai is able to do certain tasks better so you can focus on something else now is the time to embrace ai ask yourself if you can get ai to do the task what other skills would you acquire Yes, of course. This is always a reply from those who gleefully embrace technological progress. Why should a tear for those who may, for what you may lose think of what could be potentially be gained? By the time you realize what has been lost, any contemplation of what has was lost will be met with well-established refrains of, That's just the way it is. It's just always been like that, and you can't go back. Once technology has a foothold on these old skills, we can become dependent on technology to provide for us. These skills we provide previously cultivated are subsequently seen as unneeded. They become a waste of time, and technology pushes us forward by supplying its own answers to what the other skills would you acquire question. The skills you acquire the skills needed to further your servitude to technology. That's from Cliff in the New Black and Green Review. And again, uh, I think these are, these are things that we're going to continue seeing and things that are going to continue to be bigger and bigger issues because – all this talk people want to have about the discussions, about the role of uh, social media, the, the interactions of social media, and all these people who are a part of it and profited greatly from it, starting to come out and say, "Ah, uh, yeah, we're, we're actually kind of dicks. This is what we were doing, uh, whether we knew or not. We might just be nerds, but hey, we turned you into data, and now you buy into it, and now you look forward to it. You wait in line for the next piece of it. So... It's a pretty insane situation and again going to be a continuing thing but I think that that's something that is really hard to look at because it's so much to do with the way that we view the world uh, but you know it's it's not tenable and it's the reason that we're not seeing the greater destruction being caused by civilization and our role within it that brings us to the big question what can be done about all this and there's a number of things uh, obviously resisting uh, technology and putting a stop to it anywhere that you can is a big thing uh, and there's a lot more discussion about that, a lot more questions about that and a lot more options uh, that can and can't be discussed. But, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get to those. And those are also a common theme in black and green review, which I of course recommend for obvious reasons. Uh, but that's to, to counteract it. I think one of the biggest thing is, is, to, is to, as I get to the last episode talking about philosophy is to just kind of get your head out of your ass and wake up to the realities of, of just how much is, is being fucked up and just even take time away from devices uh, is, is, at this point, increasingly becoming a bigger step because we are losing track of our grounding in any and all sense. And that's why you can see these kind of insane conversations that go on in social media and shit like that uh, where, you know, kind of fringe ideas that, I've always floated around amongst philosophy and amongst whatever radical circles or whatever circles are out there. uh, Just kind of take on a life of their own and, you know, kind of ideas that have been peripheral or people could take some kind of influence from can become very real. And you get these ideas about subjectivity that just go from, uh, you know, some kind of cultural sensitivity or thing like that to this completely unraveled place where, it's all just thoughts. It's all just comes down to philosophy. It all just comes down to this very kind of distanced relationship with the world. And you can just say reality isn't real kind of garbage like that. So of course the world is real. The world does exist and it, you know, object permanence withstanding, uh, you know, real things are real. So for that rewilding, I think is a, a really strong point for us to, to recognize that there is a world that exists well beyond all the philosophical constructed ideas and all the data and everything like that. And you can actually go out and enjoy it. And I wish I could pick up some of the ambiance right now because a big help for that right now is despite the kind of insane, uh, climate shifts and things, it, it is always welcoming. Even though the spring is coming early for us, even in the Ozarks right now, uh, the sound of spring peeper is going pretty loudly. Um, for me, always very relaxing, it goes well with uh, the coyote calling that you'll hear at night a lot out here, uh, but head, the world is there, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from one of my essays in the new issue, Black and Review number five, and yes, this is a reading heavy episode, sorry, um, and it's called Feral Revisions, uh, and there's a byline. something Along the Path of Undoing Domestication. Really, the essay is a lot about just kind of the ridiculous things that myself and friends, people I know, have done on the path of rewilding to kind of shed some of the more ridiculous aspects of civilization. And in the process, coming across as kind of radical humility and getting knocked on your ass by the wild and knocked on your ass by stupid, cheesy things that you might have done, you might continue to do, and obvious things that you might be missing uh just on the path to kind of finding our plays again the world is a fairly forgiving place unlike the technosphere we have isolated ourselves in there aren't nearly as many circumstances presented in the wild that are likely to prove themselves fatal and people do die in the wild from falling out of trees yet much like the incredibly low rates of being preyed upon by other predators this is an exceptionally low probability But the chances of dying in civilization from car accidents, drug overdose, fatal medical errors, preventable diet-related illness, suicide, homicide, or any other illnesses that come along with the industrial pollution and proximity with domesticated animals are perpetually creeping up. What we give up is in exchange for the illusions of control. We accept the possibility of being killed, wounded, or debilitated by cars, yet we believe that we choose our role in an unspoken social contract just by being in and around them. As G.A. Bradshaw reminds us, We are capable of understanding carnivores or other potential predators if we just give them the benefit of the doubt and learn to understand them as a species and as individuals. That's largely not true for technology. Things go wrong constantly, and our degree of control is largely negligible. Technology gives us the weaponry to create unforeseen and often unpredicted consequences for our actions. It feeds our disconnect that washes our hands of responsibility for what we do and our own complicity within civilization. In the wild, removed of such distractions, the physical and psychological barrier is suffocated in what we can often feel like an air of vulnerability. When we outfit ourselves with gadgetry and artifacts of mass production, we're giving ourselves a survivalist lifeline to civilization. If you can move past them, then you can laugh at some of the growing pains along the way. But rest assured, we've had so many layers of domesticated vision put upon us that this journey isn't likely to end in our lifetimes. And it goes on from there, obviously, as most essays do. Uh but it's a good reminder of just how we wind up in this situation, especially as radicals, especially as people who understand or are trying to understand the the extent of ecological, sociological destruction caused by civilization on this planet, and it's, it's fucking depressing. Uh, I mean, it's awful. It's horrible. The things we're doing to this world are unspeakable, and the things that, you know, just Elon Musk trying to grand... To, to fail with grandiosity and launching a rocket into the ocean I mean, these things have huge consequences. So it's hard to find joy in this world. It's hard to take that time and really understand it. And then it kind of creates this, this perpetual feedback loop where it's just depression and depressing. Um, so there's that kind of questions like how, uh, you know, when you're involved with resisting civilization, when you're involved in resisting civilization and ecological destruction of implicit within it how do you say sane? well we have as much trouble as anybody else does and having more grounding helps a little bit but then it makes the destruction all the more obvious uh, but it's important to to look at other animals and see how the world has still stood around and how it's still resisted and how it's still resilient it still exists and we're still here. There are a lot of things to be happy about. There's a lot of things to feel good about and there's a lot of places where these things still exist and that's the entire point of talking about wildness versus wilderness. It's like this isn't a place. This is just a state of existence and it's a term we we throw on it whatever, you know. All all issues there notwithstanding, this is something. This is the entire point of rewilding is that these things exist. These aren't just ideas. You can experience this. You can see this. And so, uh, for me, a lot of that kind of comes down to just paying attention to, like, more, even more common animals and and seeing kind of the awesomeness and and beauty of a lot of it. And for me, turkey vultures are one of those things that I've seen people just take advantage of. And turkey vultures have had exceptional die-offs, and yet uh, a place I lived in, Pennsylvania, was this very small town, like a very touristy kind of shithole that had been popular... I don't know, 100 years ago and was just a rotting artifact. Um, they they would go around and fire guns and fire cannons to keep the vultures off the buildings that really nobody went into aside from a little bit during the summer and then on weekends and weeknights sometimes for people to get drunk. It just made no sense there's no point in it except, except for this ingrained hatred of the wild and it's the same reason that uh, hunter-gatherers are being killed off and people are being pushed off the reservations is we want to Present this sanitized version of history where all that shit, the caveman shit, or whatever you want to say, the hunter gatherer shit, whatever narrative is being sold here, was done and over with. We moved on. These things aren't an option. Freedom has granted you a lot of great things. Here's the trip. Here's some memories. There's the gift shop. Move the fuck on. Go on with your life. Go back to work. Whatever kind of shit we're sold. Uh, But. You know, I and mean, there's, there's, it's that's just not the way it is, and we have a lot that we have to undo and a lot that we have to work on. And the upside to it is, the shit that we've been trained not to see is pretty fucking cool. So, you know, there's a lot of programs and stuff like that. There's a lot of things that kind of offer those ideas, but by actually having these experiences, you can really kind of see the things you wouldn't notice in a book. And you read field guides, you read books about animal behavior, you read books about um, changes in migration paths and things like that. And, and, but when you actually go and see these things, and I mean, again, not necessarily talking about, uh, finding a supposedly extinct species or going out in the middle of nowhere and find all this stuff, although I have nothing against it, I strongly recommend it, but just trying to look around and seeing the social patterns of particularly common animals. And I mean, you can see the ingenuity and even in a city, when you look at rats, when you look at Robins, when you look at starlings, uh, and just Canada geese, crows, turkey vultures, all these birds, and especially like fox and coyotes, animals that that have been able to find a little niche within cities and find places that are not particularly wild and, and get there as well as being in very wild areas. And you realize, you, know, you start to understand other animals and other social animals and see the kind of commonalities between us and them because we are all social animals, but just kind of understanding the way that life works a lot. And that's the point of that for revisions. It's a point of a lot of the stuff I do is to try and kind of break down and explain in a very rational way, things that are beyond reason, things that are, that are really just innate within us that we've completely suppressed by these narratives that we've created around domestication. Uh, And for me, one one of the great things to do here is that on the land we live on, there's, there's a, a lake and there's a family of beaver and there's a river otter that tends to kind of coexist with them. And he takes over, uh, there's lodges and dens, uh, and it's pretty awesome to see. And then over the past couple of weeks and stuff like that, when we've had ice, he just goes fucking nuts. He loves it. The uh, this area is his hunting area. There's a, for, there's another lake, a larger lake for the road. And that's where more like breeding. That's where the young are and everything like that. Um, but it's pretty awesome to see. And so uh, what end up happening is because you know, the lakes freeze over, bald eagles have a harder time hunting. What you can often see is that bald eagles will fly over when they see that a river otter is hunting. And they are crazy good fishers. They are very great fishers. You'll see them dive down, up and down, and they'll come back up with a fish. You can look at a lake and think there's not that many fish in there that fucking otter will prove you wrong so fast. They will go down and they'll get them. They just... They seem like they're having a great time in life. Weasels make life look pretty damn fun. They're crazy. They're hilarious. And they they look that fun. Uh, But, you know, we we saw a couple times here recently when when the lake was frozen over and the otter was going fishing, he'd come up and he'd start rolling around the ice and we'd see a bald eagle fly in uh, and he's waiting for his chance to to get a uh, kill from the, the river otter uh, and an as we call him, uh, just rolling around the ice. He's looking, just staring right at him, looking at him rolling around, not giving a fuck. Just doesn't care. Not concerned about it. Obviously the situation can end really bad for river otters. It often does. But for me, there was just like this playfulness and kind of heckling spirit. And that was pretty awesome. But uh, since it is getting warmer, We're going to have a lot of venomous snakes out here really soon. Got me wanting to read a little bit just in the nature of talking about other cool animals. Um, So this is from G.A. Bradshaw's Carnivore Minds. Gay is awesome. I'm a huge fan of her work and she will definitely, definitely be on the show in the future uh, as I figure out all this shit about how to record interviews and things like that, but in the meantime, we'll settle for reading a little bit about rattlesnakes. They're pretty awesome. Uh, rattlers share traits associated with mammalian species known to be social. They're long-lived. Timber rattlers live up to 30 years. Late sexual bloomers, timber rattlers take up to 9 years to mature sexually, tend to cluster at the rattlesnake equivalent of watering holes, and show mothering personalities. Like elephants, rattlers are viviparous, meaning that little snakes are born live. Baby rattlers develop inside their mothers for whom they emerge living birth to the outside of the world in litters of one or more than a couple dozen. Gestation takes between three and five months depending on the species. On average, rattlesnakes spend about 8-10% to 10% of their lives in a developmental context that appears to be designed for fostering a secure attachment. This envelope of protection and nurturance is comprised of a mother in a communal habitat that may have been shared generation after generation, give or take the flux of immigration. Beyond this first stage, young snakes stay home, for, near home for a couple of weeks until they undergo their first molt. There's a lot of stuff in this book that's really awesome. Um, I'm going to read another quote here on rattlesnakes from Roger Rep To illustrate how complex and distinct rattlers are, I'll give you an example of the western diamondback, who we just referred to by a Latin species name, Atrox. In contrast with Cerberus, who bird their young within 10 meters of where they den and where rattlesnakes will help out with their sister's babies, Atrox do not form rookeries; they like to be on their own, and there is seldom a male around when, the baby, when there are babies. Furthermore, once babies have shed, they go off on their own, and as far as we know, they never get together with their mother or family again. It is possible that they do, but do not at the den sites where they, have, but not at the den sites where they have, we have witnessed. But this in no way really relates to a lack of emotions and bonds. I saw a male diamondback travel hundred meters three times in the dead of winter to be with and attend to a sick female. We have as many as ten male adrox under watch throughout thirteen winters, and never have any left the den. Have, never have any left the den and returned in winter. So, pretty awesome. Uh, and again, there's a lot in this book. In particular, I cannot recommend this book enough. It is my number one book of last year. Uh, and just talking about other carnivores other predators obligate carnivores as social animals and also understanding as as gay was instrumental in understanding the impacts of ptsd on wild animal populations uh, how they all how much we have in common and how much civilization has impacted all of them and another important part about this whole situation and talking about this is the importance of being grounded and uh, you know i talk about in that say in other places is a big thing about rewilding is moving from observation to integration to stop seeing ourselves as separate from the environment and stop seeing ourselves as kind of liberal backpackers or whatever um, with all this fancy gear to just go out and observe and, and, admire it and appreciate and venerate it from a distance without seeing ourselves as part of it. And so the flip side of that is looking at, as Gay does talking about the, the impacts of relocating populations um, and this is this is a huge issue. And I've seen environmentalists talk about all these animals as they're they're, they're kind of a blank slate. I mean, just pick them up and move them. If we want to save the species, we're going to move them from one area to another. If people are poaching elephants in one area, we're just going to move them to another area. And it it totally ignores everything about how these animals live life on their own terms and the importance of of that and the importance of the societies and the knowledge and everything that they've experienced. And it's no different in a lot of ways from slavery, where populations were forcibly moved from one area to another and we can make a lot of justifications for all that but it just goes to show how much separation we have in our own lives about what it means to be groundless people in you know a global society so she's got discussion in here about rattlesnakes like a number of other species um in terms of the impacts of relocation and in certain areas where they've been rattlesnakes have been wiped out, uh, they've tried moving them, and this is this is a little bit here. This quote is about the consequences of that there are two main purposes for moving a snake: reintroduction and migra- mitigation. Alarmed by plummeting wildlife populations, conservationists are trying to stem the hemorrhaging by developing captive breeding populations or programs. The idea is to use or reintroduce captive-bred endangered species to prevent extinction. Many efforts, however, fail. The reasons for failure are complex, multiple, political, and biological. As we saw earlier in the discussion of grizzlies, captive breeding efforts undertaken for the California condor often did not take into account normative attachment and developmental needs, with the result that young animals were ill-prepared for living on their own, and when they were reintroduced to the wild... In addition, the human practices that have brought a species close to extinction have not changed, which means that the environment where the captive is reintroduced may well have inadequate social and ecological resources for survival. Reintroduced individuals have no special immunity from hunting, urban, suburban, and farming development, power lines, pesticides, and other threats. The second kind of transportation is mitigation translocation, that is, ridding human communities of nuisance, nuisance wildlife by moving individuals or groups. Escalating human population and concomitant habitat ap- appropriation have led to increased human wildlife encounters where the inevitable outcome is that the animals are killed or there are demands for their relocation. Urbanized folk may enjoy nature shows, but they often load the share of their backyards with skunks, raccoons, bears, rattlers, and other neighbors. The so-called trespassers are usually summari- summarily trapped, shot, or poisoned. Although mitigation translocation is seen as a more benign alternative, a way to support conservation of a species, it is nonetheless problematic. Erica Nowak, a Northern Arizona University herpetologist, reports that 57% of western diamondbacks died in a translocation effort. She considers that this holds true for other cases. Rattlesnakes' mortality is particularly high if relocation occurs outside the home range, which she suggests is on average one square kilometer. Because long-lived reptiles such as desert tortoises, gill monsters, and rattlesnakes are intimately connected both to the landscape and to one another. Rattlesnakes will try and make it back home to their natal and social circles. This exposes them to predators, highways, unfamiliar environments, and other stressors. Imagine yourself trying to get home with no wallet, no credit card, no rental car, no cell phone or tablet, no food, all while having to navigate through a maze of hostile neighborhoods and you have just lost your prescription glasses. Again, great book. A lot more to be said about it, a lot more to be done with it, and... Uh, Gay definitely will get her on the show probably fairly often, I hope. Uh, but there's also an interview with her in Black Green interview number five, uh, which I strongly recommend. It's a good reminder of all the things in life that matter outside of just the survivalistic kind of ideas that we have food, water, shelter. You know, they have communities, they have things that give them joy, and without them, they will die. And we see this time and time again throughout everywhere but within our own lives that. You know, we can just, we, we're all about feeling gratification, immediate gratification for every impulse, but it just becomes a drug. It becomes a consumable thing. In many cases, it is drugs. Uh, in a lot of cases, particular, Oxycontin and opioids and things like that. Uh, but we just miss out on so much because we try to identify as individuals in a world what was never meant for individuals, never meant to be so isolated and isolating uh, and yeah, it's a big issue. And we can laugh. There's a lot of things to feel good about. There's a lot of things to be happy about uh, outside of the destruction civilizations causing. So that gets me to what's going to be my last bit here. Uh, of course, the annual missionary bash. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is going into or a part of research and the writing I'm doing for a book called Of Gods and Country, The Domestication of the World, about The Origins of Religion, uh, patriarchy and nationalism, particularly uh, interspersed with the consequences of missionary conquest and contact. So, uh, this was a the common thing. This is this bit that I want to read here is from a book called uh, "Rwani: The Context of Violence and War" from Clayton and Carol Rubertek. And the Rwani are a g- tribe of hunter-gardeners, kind of back and forth hunter-gatherers, hunter-gardeners that exist in Venezuela, become kind of famous. It's kind of the opening for the book and talking about the famous case of, uh, what's called operation ACA, which is when, uh, uh, summer Institute of linguistics missionaries tried to make contact with the Iranian, their intent to pacify them funded by oil industry, of course, and using oil industry resources and resources paid for by that. It's a whole big thing. I will get into more in future podcasts. And of course, in the book, Uh, but these missionaries greatly misread the situation thought they had something new to offer did not they were speared to death on the riverbank would be a great place to end that story and say hey these people lived on and things were great was not the case that became the impetus for uh, post-world war ii kind of revival movement for missionaries and missionary conquest made possible both by oil and by the availability of small planes That were able to get into these tight areas better. Um, So things went downhill pretty badly, Uh, and now, as has been the case, there's a a book that came out. um, I can't remember when, but Joe Kane Savage's really great book, talking about how the entirety of the area where the Rurani live uh, being under threat because of, you know, there was enough oil underneath their their sacred and ancestral lands to. Fuel the United States for 13 fucking days. So it's a crazy situation. Uh, it's, kind of, it's definitely an ongoing thing. Um, but I'll be talking about that more. But to talk about joy and to talk about the importance of community and to talk about all the great things in life, let's wind up by talking about how the missionaries hate all those things because you're not a very good Christian if you're not fucking miserable. You're not a very good civilized person. You're not a very good domesticated person if you don't just accept the misery as possible. Our misery as a way of life. So there's this kind of current, constant theme um, that somebody like Ted Kaczynski has picked up on and trying to say that Erica privas are cherry picking, glossing over all this stuff by trying to present this idea that nomadic hunter gatherer life is all uh, egalitarian, everybody's treated equally, and all these things. And there's a lot of issues there about conflating uh, political equality with egalitarianism which is equal access and everybody there there being no political power to hold over somebody else rather than just saying there's a political structure and a government and a state where everybody's granted equal rights. Whole other thing, again, something we'll get into much more, but uh he tried to counter that by talking about cases where uh hunter gatherers or indigenous people were supposedly against homosexuality. Uh and there's there's some bits of truth to what he was saying and where he was citing from. Uh, and that is that these anthropologists by and large were willing to try and help protect these indigenous people from the consequences of missionaries who were the most present, the most constant insertion of the state and all punitive power. And in those places, in these tribes and these settlements. So it becomes kind of apparent when you see even Colin Turnbull, uh, who had, did, had done most of his work amongst the Mabuti uh hunter-gatherers in the Congo, he, he talked in numerous times kind of saying stories about, in, in the ethnographies, alluding to and sometimes saying homosexuality generally wasn't permitted. It was obviously a cover. Um, Colin Turnbull's uh, Mabuti guide, who's half Mabuti, uh, became his lover, uh, and lived out his life pretty much till he died. With him as a as a gay man himself, so clearly there was aspects of it. It's just like this is what needs to be said, and this is what we're saying. And there's you know you can look at it from a number of different angles and talk about the questions of it. But at the end of the day, these people cared about the the societies that they lived with, and they didn't want to subject them to the constant pressures and pressures of bullshit. Garbage and dogma of the churches, so you know it's a little bit of a white lie. Uh, In this case, literal because he was white, but he does come out later. He talks about in *Human Cycle* the kind of common tendency for uh, a general era of sexual permissiveness and freedom that existed amongst uh, adolescents and adolescents in most all hunter gathered societies and children in almost all hunter-gatherer societies, just kind of created their own groups within, within the society and they taught each other in age grades and different groups and had their own games and had their own things where they're replicating uh, subsistence habits and, and really just turning a lot of it into games and having a good time doing what kids would do. But of course they're learning and they're able to subsist and they're able to get along and they're given a lot of space to do so. It's not a helicopter parenting situation by any means. So, in Human Cycle, he talks about uh, boys would sleep together at night and they would kind of hold each other in a circle around a fire and it wasn't uncommon basically for them to mess around or, you know, I do I want to put it. I'll just leave it open. You can figure it out. A bunch of boys, teenage boys, uh, things happen when you sleep. And uh, just mess around with each other is kind of a common thing. Nobody had any issue with it. The only time it was an issue is when there was missionaries around. So these are aspects of cultures that missionaries aggressively went after, particularly with hunter-gatherers, it seems to be the case. They just were not going to get anywhere. There was no transmittable concept for gods and demons and things like that. And it took a long time and it takes a lot of work for these missionaries to be able to kind of figure out a way to transpose uh, the ideas of a pastoralists from the Middle East and 2000 years ago or more to people living in the Amazon or people living in the Kalahari. The concepts didn't translate until they turned an oral culture into a literate one. And then they tried to really get fucked up with it. So in this case of the Ronnie in this book, kind of another example of this situation where they knew the missionaries were expecting them to just say, yeah, homosexuality doesn't happen here. It doesn't go on were against that or whatever. And this is a case of anthropologists saying it's like that was what they said clearly wasn't the case. It was one of those evening soccer games that we first became aware of the homosexual aspect of Iranian men's relationships. A group of young men from two places that I'm not going to be able to pronounce correctly were visiting in the evening. They joined in the free for all soccer game. At one point, Nangaka and one of his visitors were rolling around and wrestling in the grass. It was apparent that they both had erections this kind of horseplay continued until dusk when the two went off arm-in-arm arm, to one of the houses. The next Sunday was church, and in church during the recitation's Old Testament stories, the two men could not keep their hands off one each other. All throughout the service, the young man from the one place maintained close body contact with Nangaka and grinning uncontrollably, which clearly enthralled him. This was a source of obvious movement to the young women, including Nagago's wife, who whispered and giggled as they watched the two fondle each other. And it goes on to talk about the the anthropologists here talking about their own recognition of why they didn't see this homosexuality and why they didn't see that it was a constant thread. Just hadn't looked for it. They had taken missionary word. They had taken the word of people instead of just opening their eyes and seeing. It's like, no, they just knew they had to cover this up. We were probably slow in recognizing this because most people, most of the time, restrained any overt expressions of sexuality, either heterosexual or homosexual, in our presence. This may have been due, in at least part, to the influence of Rachel Saint, one of the missionaries who made the first contact. She deplored any expression of sexuality outside monogamous marriage, and although she lived in another settlement, her influence on uh, Omeni, the elder of the primary kindred in our settlement, was strong. Moreover, many people seem to assume that, since we were Kowadi, which is the Rani word for cannibals or outsiders, and had come to live with them, we must be some kind of missionaries. Once we became aware of the acceptability of social attraction between men, however, we began to see it often, especially at the soccer games and at Imei. One evening, for example, Kogi and Tuka, who were standing in the middle of their airstrip as the soccer game was winding down. Tuka bent over from the waist to tie his shoes, and Kogi laid across Tuka's back and put his arms around him. Tuka looked towards us with an embarrassed grin. The two spoke softly, and we caught the word Kohi as they stood up, straightened up. The proceeded down the airstrip with Kogi keeping his arm around Tuka's neck. So I think that's something that's important to take in mind. And obviously, uh, as I am equally interested in understanding history with anthropology and all the ways of undoing and understanding the impacts of civilization, these kind of things really do matter. Uh, we have to understand that there are consequences for these people that exist. You know, if an anthropologist goes there for 18 months and a missionary goes there for 16 years, there's got to be consequences that the anthropologist has to be aware are going on, or anybody who's going, not just an anthropologist, any advocate, any kind of person, or any any indigenous person themselves who's speaking up about what's going on in their culture has to take in mind the repercussions. And frankly, it seems most of the time they just don't want to deal with it for pretty obvious reasons. So, again, uh, it's it's not like... We just have this idea that civilization has to be on a mission against joy and happiness and connection and all things that are inherent and innate in life. But that really is the basis of it. That's it's it is the mission. It is the task of civilization to take everything good and turn it into something shit and then so then it could sell us some some paltry stand Uh and in that case, we come back to technology, we come back to social media, we come back to all these things. They're supposed to give us meeting, and really it's about just trying to turn us more into machines than turning machines into humans. So fortunately, we can resist it. Fortunately, everything else still exists. Fortunately, the world is still there. And as Pierre Clastris would point out, uh, talking about the would would made them laugh would be to wake each other up by farting each other's faces when people were sleeping in their hammocks. fortunate thing is that's always going to be funny. My five-year-old daughters know it. They uh, they do it quite often, and it, I'll admit, it's pretty funny. Um, but there are good things, and as much as we're you know, kind of being convinced and being sold to be, become cyborgs, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, there's always going to be that part of us that is a social animal. There's going to be that part of us that is resisting and refusing, and we can embrace that part, and we can undo the entirety of this as we embrace that and as we learn to understand more about how civilization functions and finding out all the ways that it's complete and utter bullshit. So I'll leave it there for now. Uh, I will mention again, uh, blackandgreenreview.org is where I have all the books. My newest book is Gathered Remains. The newest issue of Black and Green Review is number five. Number six will be coming out later this year. A whole bunch of books will be coming out as well. Uh, There's more information on my own projects at kevintucker.org. And if you're getting this podcast off the Black and Green website, the Black and Green Review website, on the podcast tab, you can also support via PayPal or via Patreon. Hugely appreciated. Uh, Black and Green has been around since 2000. It has gotten where it has gotten because of donations. They're a massive help. Of course, buying the books and stuff like that is a huge thing. and That's the main thing we want to do, but the way that it's all priced out, it's if it was a business, it'd be a shitty one. Uh, but, you know, we want to get the ideas out there. We want to get these ideas into people's hands and not just on a screen. That said, people asked. I've listened. All, pretty much all the black and green titles right now are up on the blackandgreenview.org website shop as ebooks as well. Mainly for international folks because that international shipping sucks. And if you are international and you're looking for getting books and you want to help distribute, uh, write me. I'll do deals and try and help out where we'll just fill a flat rate box and I'll do everything at cost. So uh, more books in hands, more conversations in person, more discussion face to face, more interactions with the world, and hopefully a whole lot more integration. And I will see you next week. If you have any questions or comments, blackandgreenpress at gmail and our PO box is uh, Black and Green PO Box four hundred two. Salem, Missouri, 65560.